Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, fellow trauma and vascular trained uh, surgeon, Pedro Chichera. Thanks for joining us, Pedro. Hey, Joe, thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So today I've asked you to kind of talk about uh, blunt thoracic aortic injury. You know, it's an entity that we fortunately don't see very often. Most of these patients die at the scene, but they do present some management challenges when they do present. And there's some, you know, things I think we can talk through and maybe make us all smarter about if that's okay with you. Oh, that's perfect. So I guess my first question is, uh, you know, we, it's a blunt mechanism by definition, right? Blunt thoracic aortic injury. But what, speci- what patient specifically should I suspect the blunt thoracic aortic injury? Well, Joe, if you think about the, the mechanism of injury that uh, we see when this injury appears to the emergency room, it's going to be related to high energy mechanism. You know, it's not going to be the minor fall. It's not going to be the minor blunt trauma. It will have some significant energy that's transferred to that mediastinum to be able to like swing the, the, the heart and tear the aorta of the isthmus. So every time you hear about a high speed motor vehicle accident, a high level fall, pedestrian injured uh, by a vehicle, all these uh, high energy mechanisms, the, the possibility of a thoracic aortic injury has to be high on your list. Of course, it's going to be a small minority of these uh, cases that will have the aortic injury, but those are going to be the ones that the injury is going to be present. And I think, you know, we get pounded this. Uh, most trauma places talk a lot about the location these occur in vascular surgery. Certainly, we really get emphasized in our training why they occur at characteristic locations. But what is the characteristic location, the, the typical location for a blunt thoracic aortic injury, and why does that happen? Well, if you look at the way the aorta uh, is lo- located and positioned in the mediastinum, you have the, the heart and the aortic arch, which are fairly mobile. And then at the level where the isthmus is, which is just distal to the left subclavian artery, uh, the aorta from that point down, it is very fixed to the paravertebral tissue. So then you have this combination of a, of a descending aorta that's fixed to the posterior mediastinum, and then you have the aortic arch and the heart that can swing with this transferred energy. So that's the, the location where you have a difference in velocity and deceleration when you have a crash, when you have a fall, and that's why that's the location where the, the, the difference in, in deceleration is gonna cause the injury. Okay, yeah, great. That, um, I think that's useful for folks. Uh, you know, as part of the standard, uh, major blunt mechanisms, we got to be concerned or suspicious that this could occur. One of the tools we use in kind of ATLS initial evaluation is the chest x-ray. And there's this litany of signs and symptoms that we often get pimped about uh, and as trauma surgeons, right, as trainees or surgery residents or ER docs that are consistent with possibility, the increased possibility of aortic injury. I, I'm thinking about, you know, they, the, what, what, we can go through them together because we've been beat up on them so many times. The wide mediastinum is probably the most common, the a, uh, blunted aortic window, the aortic, the capping over the left lung, uh, the shift of the trachea and the esophageal tubes, um, all of those things. But my question for you is how um, reliable and useful is X- chest x-ray actually as a screening tool for blunt thoracic aortic injury, given that those signs are associated with it, but how often do they happen? 
Yeah, so that's a that's a great question because I, I, it feels that we dedicate so much time at memorizing all those uh, individual findings on the chest X-ray that could point towards uh, the presence of an aortic injury. But we know that even if the X-ray has those findings, a very small minority of the patients will have the the injury. It's about one percent if you have a, a positive finding on the on the X-ray. But for us, in terms of screening, it's important to look at the flip side. We know that. Uh, up to 40% of patients that have a thoracic aortic injury can have a normal, otherwise normal chest x-ray. So the chest x-ray is not sensitive enough to rule out the thoracic aortic injury. So, and that's why every time you have a high speed uh, uh, mechanism, you have a high energy transfer to the body, we need to think about a better tool to identify the, these injuries. The chest X-ray on itself is not enough to rule out this injury. Yeah, and CTA has kind of become ubiquitous trauma practice. Is that the ideal tool, you think? I mean, traditionally, they would do angiogram, and they have these other intravascular uh, ultrasound things, but what's the first screening tool if chest x-ray is not perfect? Well, I think the, the, the CT scan with IV contrast that we routinely obtain for these high uh, energy mechanisms, I think it's it's more than enough. So if you think about this, I mean, most of these patients that have uh, the, the, the mechanism of injury that's compatible with the suspicion of thoracic aortic injury, they will go to the scanner, they probably will have the, the, the CT scan of the head, they will have a torso uh, CT scan with uh, IV contrast, and that study is going to be enough for us to both uh, identify the injury and even to uh, make the, the planning of approach and treatment. So let's say uh, I'm a trauma surgeon and I I'll CT identify a mid-grade blunt thoracic aortic injury. I've called the vascular surgeon to come assist with management of this. What's What management things should I do until they get there and we decide on a plan? What's the initial management of blunt thoracic aortic injury? Well, that's a great question. I think uh, the most important factor uh, for a successful outcome for these patients is number one, to recognize the injury. Because a lot of what we do uh, is the, the medical management of these patients until the injury is repaired. And I think that's very important. That's why recognizing the, the high-risk patients, identifying the injury is your, your key for success. Because after you know that the injury is present, that is going to change the way you manage this patient. Because the, the, the main treatment uh, approach for this is the control of blood pressure. We know that if we are able to reduce the blood pressure, and most importantly, to reduce the shearing force that that aorta is being uh, uh, exposed to, we will decrease the risk of rupture while these patients are being resuscitated and being managed for the, the associated injuries. For that matter, the important step would be the patient is going to be monitored, of course, in a, in a, a very close environment, and uh, beta blockers are the drug of choice uh, to, to look for this uh, um, reduction in blood pressure. And then if you still need some additional uh, blood pressure control, vasodilators can be, can be added. But the, the most important thing is to reduce the shearing uh, force uh, that's being uh, 
produced at the aortic injury site. So do you have a go-to agent, and then if the, you're asking if they identify this injury and you're going to go see, evaluate the patient, look at the CT scans, what targets blood pressure-wise? I know it's all over the place, and there's no prospective randomized control data, but what do you tell them to keep the blood pressure in a certain range with, with those agents, and what agent do you use? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think uh, it's important to have uh, an IV uh, drug that you can use and titrate well. I think for most of us, Esmolol is a good alternative for these patients. Uh, and like like you mentioned, there is no good data to support the target of blood pressure, but typically we keep these patients with a systolic no more than 120, 100. So, and that needs to be very careful because, you know, a lot of these patients are going to have associated head injury, right? So one thing that you really need to minimize is the possibility of a secondary brain injury. So it can be a tricky situation and that's why the patient needs to be in an ICU. Uh, The team needs to have a discussion about what the goals of treatment are because what you really don't want is by uh, trying to control the blood pressure to what we would say a normal level, you don't want to make this patient hypotensive. So it's really important to be very careful because you don't want to create a secondary injury in other uh, in other areas. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, and then you start with the Esmolol, if you still need more uh, uh, controlled blood pressure, I think vasodilators, some nitro or something like that it's it's advisable but for the majority of patients we can get the blood pressure at the level we want uh with a with as well and some people look at the heart rate trying to keep the heart rate between 60 and 90 um we typically worry more about the, the blood pressure the heart heart rate itself yeah, I think, you know, uh, you and I both work uh, in contributing patients to the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Aortic Trauma Foundation Registry on these injuries. And uh, having recently looked at that data, it's all over the place what people recommend, but the most common is Esmolol and a systolic target less than 120. So, um, Yeah, I think when we talk about this with, with people across the country, I think there's kind of a, a consensus that this is, this is what we should be shooting for. Sure. Uh, okay, so we've done that. We started the Esmolol. The patient's blood pressure is less than 120. How do you decide who needs to have something done surgically or either by open or endovascular means? This is a great question. This is something that has changed quite a bit over the years. Um, and the, the way I look at this, Joe, I, I look at the integrity of the aortic wall. So when you go back to the SVS classification of injury grading. And, and that's the so- you, SVS is Society for Vascular Surgery, right? They have right, the, the Society, Society for Vascular Surgery classification of uh, the injury by grade. So we have four injury grades, one being a, a, an intimal tear, two being an intramural hematoma, three being a pseudoaneurysm, and grade four being a rupture. Of course, grade four, we rarely see those patients because most of them die at the scene. So we're basically talking about uh, the three uh, grades, one, two, and three, that we need to make a decision. So the way I look at it, grades one and two, you still have integrity of the aortic wall. The disruption does not affect all layers of the aortic wall. And what we have learned uh, from multiple studies is that for these minor or called minimal injuries, definitely for grade one, they can be watched. They don't necessarily need to be intervened because a lot of these patients, if you repeat imaging a few in a few weeks, that those injuries are, are going to have uh, resolved on itself. So the way I look at it, 
if you have a grade one injury, most of these patients will be uh, conservative managed with blood pressure control and just uh, uh, observation. Uh, the, the grade two is the, the, the a little bit of a gray area, but I think more and more we see data coming out that supports the non-operative management of those uh, patients too. And when we start talking about grade three, which is a, a, a pseudo aneurysm, uh, I think we all agree that most of those need to be treated. Yeah, I think that it certainly is a dynamic time in, in that regard. Those uh, Society for Vascular Surgery guidelines are getting pretty dated now, and they haven't really been revised. I'm hoping that the Aortic Trauma Foundation can collect some information that'll help revise that in conjunction with research other folks are doing. Washington State, Seattle, they're doing some great stuff, Ben Starnes and others. So the times are changing, that's for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. For the, the, the society does recommend that on the, the, the last recommendation that only type 1 injuries, the grade 1 injuries, that could be treated non-operative. So they don't they don't address the, the grade two injuries, but as we as we discussed, this is something that's changing. We're having more and more information that those can also be successfully and safely managed with without an intervention. Yep. So if they don't need an intervention, what I'm gathering from you, and I think we agree on, is medical management, blood pressure control. At some point, you ultimately transition from the continuous infusion of Esmolol to something else that keeps them in a reasonable range, and you reimage and see the natural history of this thing. Some will progress and need treatment. Some will heal. But what about those that you decide, you know what, I'm going to repair this one. It's a pseudoaneurysm. It's a big pseudoaneurysm. It represents a risk of rupture. What are your repair options in the modern era, and how do you make that choice? Well, so then we need to go back to the history of how this injury uh, has been treated over time. And now when we talk about uh, fixing an aortic, a blunt aortic injury, we're almost always uh, discussing endovascular repair. So we have the option of doing an open repair, which means a, a left thoracotomy and interposition of a Dacron graft at the area of injury. Most of the time, these patients are going to need a left heart bypass to minimize the risk of paraplegia. So it's a, it's a pretty significant surgical intervention in a patient that has a lot of associated injuries. So it's a pretty big deal with significant comorbidities. But that has completely changed since the uh, endovascular techniques became more widespread, they became more evolved, and we have options now to treat uh, aortas of small caliber in, in these trauma patients. So at this day and age, it's pretty much the first choice became standard of care that all most of these patients are going to be treated with an endovascular repair. And if you look at the history, so if you look back at the, the multi-center AASC study that was done in the 90s, that was in 98, at that point there was, there was no endovascular repair. All the patients in the study were treated with uh, an open repair because endovascular just didn't exist. And then when you go back 10 years from that study in 2008, the second uh, prospective uh, AASC study, at that point, already two-thirds of the patients were treated endovascularly. So you see, uh, culturally, there was a significant change. There was a complete change in practice over a period of 10 years in the early 2000s in which you go from uh, a technology that's non-existent to now two-thirds of the patients uh, being treated endovascularly. And since that study in 2008, uh, what we see in the literature and we see uh, 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 across the country is that the vast majority of the patients that go for repair with an intervention, they end up being repaired endovascularly. Yeah, a class of the thoracic endovascular aortic repairers. You know, we're vascular surgeons, right? By dual training, we love to give an acronym and everything, so it's just TVAR to us. TVAR. TVAR right. it is. 
So what? So you've selected a patient for T-bar. Most of these patients that need repair will have that. What are the considerations um, that that you take into mind? You know, I always try to counsel our trauma fellows and our residents. I said, you know, if you want to be a good partner, know what the person, the questions the person's going to need to know to see if they're amenable for T-bar. What are those questions, and what are the, those considerations? So I think a, a, a nice way to to break this down into you know how you approach the injury is to just think about how this procedure is done right so the the procedure fixes the aorta by placing a self-expanding stent that's covered uh, across the area of injury so the first step to have this accomplished is to introduce the device into the aorta in order to do that, you need to get arterial access, which we typically do through the femoral arteries. And the sheets that need to be inserted to de- deploy the stent are of considerable uh, caliber. So the first thing you look at is, okay, so can we actually get access and uh, put this, this device up there? So access is one of the, the considerations. The second one is the anatomy, right? You look at the aortic arch, you look at where the injury is, you look at the dimensions of the aorta, both uh, like tortuosity, the diameter, and you make all your calculations about what size device you're gonna have to use, and and you make an estimation if you will be able to completely exclude this injury by deploying that device. So that's the number two. So you need to have good imaging of the aorta to make the determination of the size and type of device you're gonna use. And then the third part is, okay, so by deploying the stent there, what are gonna be the pitfalls and can we end up creating problems? And a lot of the problems related to this is, are we gonna be able to completely cover this without extending this, this endograft into, into the aortic arch? Because now you're talking about manipulating the uh, ostium of the aortic branches and you can have issues in terms of stroke, paraplegia that, that we, we could talk uh, in, in more details. So that's that's important. You need to make a, a determination. Am I going to be able to, to deploy the stent without covering the left subclavian? If I need to cover, do we need to look at a dangerous cerebral circulation, right? Because if you need to cover the left subclavian, you may be reducing the flow through the left vertebral. So then it would be important to know if the patient has uh, a, a circle of willis that's patent and that has collateral circulation in the brain. So all these things are important, but I, I, I like to make it simple. I break it down into access, device selection, and then the, uh, the adjuncts for, for a, a successful case. Yeah, all good points, and that's kind of the way I break it down, too. Now, there are some caveats, right? Uh, there are some patient pops. So you have some patients that have kind of lower-grade injuries that initially you don't think that uh, uh, you, you would probably repair, but they're not going to be amenable to medical management, right? If you can't keep their blood pressure in a range that you want to keep for the medical management, uh, it's hard to argue that you're going to be able to do optimal medical management and you have to do the risk-benefit analysis of doing T-bar versus struggling with the medical management in a confined kind of scenario. And the one that jumps out to me, you mentioned already, actually, was uh, yeah head injury because the the classic battle right the neurosurgeons want a perfusion pressure to the brain that's above the blood pressure range that you want you want a blood pressure range that's below that and the poor trauma surgeon intensivist is caught in the middle so um, I think in systems where people communicate well uh, 
you know, there's greater consideration to um, to doing a, a T-bar in that setting, even though they may not be in that range that's an absolute, you know, we need to do a T-bar. Is that your experience too? No, I think you're, you're hitting a very important point because uh, considering how we can quickly, safely, and, and very effectively perform this, this repair now with a, with a T-bar, I think a lot of the times in this uh lower grade injuries that you have you you know you're going to struggle with blood pressure control uh we do consider fixing the order to get it out of take it out of the equation because then after after you deploy your stent you cover that you cover that injury now you don't have to necessarily worry about that as being one of the of the the things that you need to juggle in the icu and you can concentrate on the on the management of the brain injury i, I completely agree and we 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 look we look at this issue with the same with the same criteria as you as you mentioned so what what about optimal timing of repair another kind of sort of gray area here the old the decade old svs guidelines recommend kind of urgent repair within 24 48 hours uh, I, I see practice changing at different places because as i tell our residents uh, and trauma fellows if you look at the data most people who die after an aortic injury die with their aortic injury from other causes not from their aortic injury so taking a little extra time to kind of deal with the other life-threatening things uh, in all patients is probably prudent. And uh, and then probably in most patients, you can wait a little longer than that 24 hours. But what's your thought on that? What's the optimal timing for doing a T-bar? So this is a very interesting area. And, you know, I don't think we're ever going to have a study to answer this question accurately. It's going to be very hard. Uh, we did look at this in the AASC study, which showed that the patients that got repaired after 48 hours, they did better. But of course, you have all the bias selection that is for, from a study that was not designed to answer that question. Uh, but the evolution of the treatment of this condition and the way these patients behave and the experience we have gathered so far, I reached a point where, you know, I think we don't have to rush, but we also don't need to wait. Meaning, you know, you don't have to stop everything you're doing to fix this aorta at 2 a.m., uh, considering that the patient has other life-threatening issues that, that, that should have priority. But at the same time, after all these life-threatening issues have been addressed, there's no need to wait for the next 24, for the next 48 hours to, to operate on the aorta. So the way I, I manage these patients, let's say the patient comes uh, at the end of the day on a, on a regular call, we admit the patient, do all the things uh, that we discuss, take care of the life-threatening injuries. Sometimes they need a laparotomy, sometimes they need to have a pelvic pack and, and you need other things that the trauma that patients need and most of the times what we're going to do for the aorta you're going to do it uh, business hours during the day when you have the whole team you can select the graph you have everything you need you know there's uh, very little concern about doing this thing in the middle of the night and it's not, not just a matter of being in the middle of the night the most important thing in my view is to have the opportunity to address the life-threatening issues, take care of all the other injuries that are gonna be a problem for you, that gonna have, con have continued blood loss, that are gonna have a detrimental effect in this patient's outcome, and then when you have those things stabilized, then you can concentrate on fixing the aorta. Yeah, another th a point that I think a lot of trauma surgeons don't think about, they, you know, we, we can make that aortic injury go away, sure, with the T-bar, 
But that CT scan that they initially got, that patient was probably, based on the kind of mechanisms that cause blunt thoracic aortic injury, uh, probably under-resuscitated. So the, the CTA that we it can take measurements off and determine what size graft probably underestimates the size of the actual aorta when they're resuscitated. So getting them resuscitated and then using another modality, either angiogram or intravascular ultrasound, to see what the actual aortic size looks like when the patient's walking around outside the hospital helps us better size the graft. And I think people... Uh, forget that it, it, there, there is benefit to getting them resuscitated first uh, before fixing Definitely, and, it, and if we consider the, the age of the majority of these patients, there are young patients, uh, the sympathetic response they have is pretty significant. And, and as, you, as you know, uh, when you have a significant change in the diameter of this vessel. And I don't know how you're practicing now, but in my practice, I, I always... Uh, do an IVUS, uh, which is an intravascular ultrasound, at the time of the repair to make sure that the diameter that I have in the aorta now post-resuscitation is either consistent what, with what we had uh, in the initial CT scan, but what we see again and again is that uh, a lot of the times we, ha- we end up choosing a graph that's one size bigger than what you have anticipated considering uh, the initial CAT scan for the very reasons that you highlighted uh, of under resuscitation. Yeah, I too use IVUS every time and I'm always amazed that just about every time it influences uh, and a better resuscitated patient the graft size. Uh, you, we talked a, you talked a little bit about graft placement. Sometimes you have to, to cover this thing adequately. You have to encroach on the arch vessels a little bit, most characteristically and probably most routinely, the left subclavian. In fact, if you look at the aortic kind of registry data or the literature, about 35-40% of patients have coverage of their left subclavian. Uh, what's the risk associated with this coverage? And what if I'm the trauma surgeon or the vascular surgeon manages these patients after, what do I need to think about and what do I need to do afterwards? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great technical point and something that we need to be aware of. So, uh, like you mentioned, in order to successfully treat the injury, sometimes you need to extend this graft more proximally because that injury is just too close to the left subclavian to have an adequate seal proximally. And the risk of covering the left subclavian uh, origin, uh, I basically break it down in two separate categories. One is the vascular component to the arm which means if you cover that ostium, you may reduce the arterial flow to the left arm and you can have our ischemia. Most of the times that ischemia is not uh, uh, severe, so you have time to uh, follow the patient and see how things are going to be, and we can discuss it a little bit further. And the next group of of, uh, issues that I, I... consider is the neurologic problems, which are twofold. You have the the risk of spinal cord ischemia by covering the left subclavian, and that goes from the the circulation, the collateral circulation that goes to the spinal artery, and you also have the risk of stroke. And also the the neurologic potential of a negative uh, outcome uh, when you cover that left left subclavian uh, is, is not is not to, to be disconsidered. It's it's an important one and needs to be uh, thought about. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that 30 to 40% of these patients in our, our current registries, they end up having that left subclavian coverage. And my personal belief is that probably we don't need to cover those uh, all those subclavians. So uh, the way I see it, 
knowing that there is a risk of significant complications by doing that, I think we need to make an effort not to cover it. And I think we have technology now. You have better graphs, graphs that conform to the aortic arch. You know, if you do a careful deployment, you can actually get as far as possible, get a good deployment, and then avoid covering the last subclavian in a substantial number of patients, trying to decrease that the rate of the patients that really need the, the, the left subclavian covered. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we have, as a community, uh, based on those, that 40% figure and the fact that most people tolerate it, have gotten maybe a little too cavalier uh, in some instances about covering the left subclavian and really should be more mindful of it. I, I think you talked a little bit about looking at the circle of Willis preoperatively. That blood flow, the reason the arm doesn't get ischemic for most folks to kind of think about who don't think about this stuff on a daily basis is if you have an intact the circle of Willis, the blood goes up the carotid, goes in the circle of Willis, and comes back down the vertebral and out to the arm. And that is a powerful alternative route of blood flow to the arm and keeps it from getting ischemic. Another pitfall I see that's a communication piece is if you cover the left subclavian you get, and I get the call from the ICU at 2 a.m., hey, the blood pressure is different in the left arm. Well, yeah, it is, and here's why. So just communicating those things is, can be really powerful. Um, yeah, and that, and that goes for your uh, preoperative planning, too. I mean, this is something that you need to be in touch with uh, with the ICU team. A lot of the time, this patient is going to have uh, uh, an arterial line catheter in the left upper extremity. You know, that's going to stop working. If you if uh, coverage of less implant is part of your uh, procedural uh, uh, plan, so I mean, uh, you highlight this this issue of communication, and I think it's very important. Every time you have multiple teams, you have the vascular team, you have the trauma team, the ICU, all involved in the care of these patients. Everyone needs to know what the plan is what to expect after because you're right you get that phone call saying oh the blood pressure is low but then the a line is on the left side yeah so it doesn't mean anything so what about what other post-operative considerations do you, uh, and, and uh, post-op complications are, are common we should tell people to be to watch out for yeah so i think the first thing that comes to mind after you do these procedures is uh, because they are the most severe problems of course um um you can have uh, intraoperative complications, which are, are very rare uh, at this day and age. But when you successfully complete this procedure post-operative, the first things you really want to see is the neurologic function. At least that's my that's my uh, my approach. You 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 worry about stroke, especially if you had to extend it uh, into the arch, and you worry about the spinal cord ischemia. So getting a, a, a the a accurate neurologic exam as early as possible after the procedure is very important. And the next uh, most significant complications that we need to worry about is related to access. We discussed that we, in order to deploy this stand up in the arch, we need to get access to the femoral arteries. Uh, those sheets are not small. Uh, and you have potential of complications. You can have thrombosis of these vessels, you can have injury, dissection of these vessels. So it's again important to be communicating with the team that's going to be taking care of this patient in the ICU. You need to do a, a, a pulse exam at the end of your procedure to make sure that you didn't restrict flow to the lower extremities. That pulse exam needs to be repeated in the ICU very carefully because any change, you have to assume that you have a problem at the access site and early intervention is important because if there's no communication, if you if you high five at the end of the procedure and then you're going to get that phone call 12 hours later when the foot is blue. 
and that's going to be a delayed diagnosis with a significant risk of limb loss. So uh, being proactive, uh, recognizing the possibility of this complication and staying ahead of the game is really important in this in this situation. Yeah, you know, other two questions that I get asked a lot in ICU that I think just are things that just myths that need to be dispelled, and I, I would like your perspective on these, is I get called, what do you want me to do with asthma right? So they don't need medical management once the injury's been covered. And I think that's just, oftentimes, that's just a foresight. They went to the OR on a, on a pressure managing a pharmacologic agent, and now they come out of the OR on the same medication. That doesn't need to happen. The other thing yeah, is... And, and actually, and actually, Joe, if you think about this, I, I communicate with the anesthesiologist during the case and the, the minute I deployed that stent graft, I actually want the blood pressure a little higher, yeah. right? Because yeah. we talked about the risk of uh, spinal cord ischemia. Yep. So what you really want now after the aortic injury is covered, you're happy with your repair, you're not concerned about uh, rupture of that injury anymore. Now you actually want your blood pressure to be on the high side because you want to to increase the, the blood flow to the, the to the spinal cord, and you need to make sure that you're decreasing the risk of having spinal cord ischemia. So I completely agree. What you really don't want is to have miscommunication, and when you when you know people are, are uh, titrating blood uh, blood pressure medication to keep a blood pressure uh, on the low side in the ICU, you actually want the opposite. I totally agree. I'm glad we're on that point. The other question I often get is what anticoagulation or antiplatelet plan? I do not, in a healthy patient with no atherosclerotic disease and a, uh, you know, a percutaneous femoral access, I'm not worried about the access site. I'm just think, talking about the T-bar area here. I don't use anything. I don't use aspirin platelets. It is such a high flow rate. Those the graphs, modern graphs are so well designed uh, that I don't think you, the, the thrombus risk um, in patients with other injuries warrants adding an antiplatelet or an anticoagulant. Do you agree with that, or what's your thoughts on it? Yeah. So when I when I think about anticoagulation in these cases, I tend to break them down into the procedural phase and the post-treatment phase. And I 100% agree with you. I don't think for a normal aorta with this high flow that we see in the arch and normal vessels in the groin that this patient is going to need any antiplatelet or any anticoagulation uh, after the procedure is done. I do not uh, do this in my practice and I, I don't think we, we, we need that. In terms of what you do during the operation, um, that's a different discussion. Yep. Because, you know, being able to give a systemic dose of, of heparin uh, because of the presence of those big sheets in the femoral artery, as well as having catheters and the manipulation uh, inside the arch, I think is great. So, but that, of course, you have to balance against the, the, the risk of bleeding from the associated injuries, you know? And the one thing that we really worry about is if a patient that has a pretty significant intracranial uh, uh, pathology that you worry about increasing the, the bleed with the systemic heparin. But uh, I would say we are pretty liberal about giving heparin uh, procedure. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that does warrant a conversation with the trauma surgeon, letting him know. I do the a kind of a quick on and off. Hopefully the procedure goes quickly. You give the heparin and then you reverse it pretty quickly with protamine to minimize that window of risk. Um, what, so what else did I miss? We talked a lot about some good stuff about thoracic aortic injury. What did I not ask that you wish that folks understood about this kind of entity that we face? Did we hit it all? It's it's an interesting it's an interesting injury and the management has changed so much. What I think we need to the message that we need to put out there. I think people that like grew up and trained in the era of endovascular disease 
uh, and the vascular management of the uh, pathologies tend to think that this is a trivial injury. You know, because we do a T-VAR, it's a 30-minute procedure, and everything is fine, and the risk of complication is low. So the perception is that this injury is a minimal thing. And I don't think that's the message. You know, uh, it's a major injury. It can have pretty substantial complications associated with it. We are just fortunate to have a technology now that allows us to treat it uh, in a very effective way, safe way, quickly, and then address the, the other injuries. So if, if I would like to propagate a message, I don't think that this is a trivial injury, although it, it's, it almost sounds that way nowadays, but it's, it's not, it's a big deal. It really is, and I agree with you. We've got probably a we've got a very slick technology to deal with it, and we can. I think Pedro Teixeira makes it look easy, but it uh, it is not uh, easy. So, uh, so Pedro, we come to that kind of the tail end of our uh, podcast here, where we ask uh, ran, our random questions, and these are designed to let us know who you are as a human being, how your brain works, and are less clinically derived. Are you ready for your random questions, sir? Go for it. Uh, dinosaurs or dragons? Uh, that's a joke question, huh? Um, These are all well, come on. You got to have fun with it. Where, where, where? I, I know, I know, I know. Well, I probably would pick dinosaur. You know, uh, okay. I I'm a very pragmatic guy, and I, I I'm a firm believer that Darwin's theory of evolution is probably one of the biggest achievements that we we achieved as a species. Uh-huh. You know, and uh, it it puts everything into perspective and it helps us to understand our our place in the universe i do think the fantasy is important for for a good living but uh, dinosaurs are, are are ahead of the game for me yeah i think i think the the stuff that's really happened is always more interesting truth fact is always more interesting than fiction sometimes so, i i could not agree more so you are uh, uh, a proud brazilian growing up uh, from sao paulo right um and, what's that Okay, I, I'll let you say that one uh, because I... Yeah so, yeah, so for the ones that know anything about Brazil, uh, it's one of the capitals, a major capital in Brazil. So yep. it's, a, it's a big city. And if you translate, the name is a beautiful horizon. It's an area of the country with a lot of mountains. And the name of the city is to, to reflect uh, the landscape. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. So as any proud Brazilian, you're a soccer fan, correct? Correct. And Brazil has a proud soccer history. So my next either-or question uh, would be um, Ronaldo or Pele? Well, that's an easy one. I would I would choose Pele. Why? You know, so. Well, if you think about if we make an analogy, Pele would be the debate of soccer. You know, <laughs> you have you have people nowadays doing pretty pretty interesting things. Uh, uh, you know, very competent and doing very creative stuff. But a guy like Debeke, he, he kind of invented the way the game was played. And this is what Pelé did. He, he, he invented things. He made it possible. And now people just build upon what he, what he created. The stuff that he did back in the day. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. he's, he's a debate, the debate of soccer. Okay. Fair enough. Good analogy. On your day off, what kind of, or when you're kicking around the house, what music's on the radio? What are you listening to these days? 
So, you know, this is not a choice anymore because I have three small kids and they, they control the music of the house. It's really hard. You got to let, uh, so, you, you let it go. Uh, you know, let it yeah. go. Let yeah, it go. Taylor, Taylor Swift is, okay. is a very common thing at the house. But I, I am a rock and roll guy and I do play guitar too. So when I when I can lock myself in my in my little studio here, uh, it's, a, it's rock and roll. Okay, fair enough. What groups? What what particular, what you listen to today? Well, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Rolling okay. Stones, it's like all the Classic all the good rock. stuff. Love yeah. it. Okay. You also had a very unique pathway to get where you are now in terms of training. You, uh, For folks who don't know, you did full surgical training in Brazil. You came to the U.S. You did research for a while. That's where I got to know you at L.A. County, where we shared so much time together and really did a lot of good, I thought, good science and uh, fun science anyway together. Yeah, and then almost you, 15 years ago. I know. It's been a while. Don't remind me. Yeah. But, uh, You're getting old, Joe. Oh, thank you, sir, for that. Um <laughs> And then you went back and did a full surgical training five years in the U.S. You did a critical care fellowship. You did a vascular fellowship. Really kind of carved out a pretty unique pathway. So there are a lot of people out there who are still in the early phases of their training or career that are interested in unique pathways as well, uh, both here and abroad, right? So what would you? What would be your advice to them, having done all that yourself? Yeah, so I think the main advice is is to have a goal, you to understand what you like to do and what you want to do, and then and then choose the pathway how you're going to get there according to the opportunities that you get. And I, I think you have to try to increase the odds of doing things that you like. You need to surround yourself with people that you enjoy spending time with because you're going to end up spending a lot of time with these people. People are going to help you through your throughout your career. Uh, you're going to make important connections uh, in life, and this is going to be uh, really important. You know, sometimes it's going to be overwhelming. Uh, it just seems that everything is too much, that there's no way you can accomplish things. And, you know, as a, as a trauma surgeon, every time you get overwhelmed, uh, you just need to go into damage control mode. And I think I... That's the one way that I approach my, my, my career building process, my, my training process and everything. Every time things look overwhelming, just thought about the damage control principles. Take care of the things that are gonna be important at that moment and then postpone the things that are not uh, immediately uh, uh, relevant. And I think that helps you, you know, break things down into more manageable pieces that you can accomplish and then always keep moving forward to that goal that I that I mentioned in the beginning. And, and I don't know, this final point may sound a little cliche, but you know, every time you hear from someone that you can't do it, you know, your response to that you can't do it should be a thank you. Because like for me, uh, one of the best motivator, mo- motivators I had uh, during this whole process was the idea that I could prove those people wrong. So every time you hear, you know what, can be done, you won't be able to do this, this is not possible, just say thank you and then use that as a, as a motivator uh, to propel you and to uh, help you uh, achieve your goals. Wow, that's great advice, man. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat to us, Pedro. Thanks so much today. Uh, Joe, that's a that's a, a a great great pleasure. It's really nice talking to you. I think it's a great initiative, and yeah, I want to see a lot of people listening to this and taking uh, some some good information out of it. 
Well, this has been the Trauma Podcast. Uh, for those listening, be sure to partake of our other offerings via iTunes uh, or any modality that you use to consume podcasts. And it, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for topics, people to reach out to that you want to hear from on our podcast, you can always email us at the Trauma Podcast, all one word, lowercase, the Trauma Podcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.